Good morning. We get to continue our study of the book of James. So if you'll make your way there in, in your word or in your device, we're going to be in chapter 1 starting in verse 12 and just focus on the theme of enduring trials and overcoming temptation on the way to the future life that God has for his people. But a few months ago, uh, a few of us from Brook Hills, a handful of us found ourselves on a runway in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia on a Malaysian Airlines flight ready for takeoff when the pilot came across the intercom and said, there's a problem with the engine oil. We should have you in the air in 30 minutes. 30 minutes turned into an hour and the next word from the pilot was an engine part needs to be replaced so we'll need to wait a bit longer. That turned into four to five hours and finally we were in the air. Now, if you know anything about Malaysian Airlines, you might have something in the not so distant past in your mind. Two airplanes within five months of one another back in 2014 crashed from their fleet. Now one, to be fair, was shot down over Ukrainian airspace, which just to be honest, wasn't exactly a, a comforting thought um, on the tarmac. Um, the other one has yet to be found, Flight 370, if you remember that. So I remember looking around at everyone from Brook Hills that was in, on that flight, and I know my mind was racing, and I know theirs was racing. Should I be on this plane? <laughs> Should we be on this plane, right? Yes, you might say to Chip in his soul, his doubting and waffling soul, airline travel is one of the safest in the world. But we were about to be guinea pigs to test the quality of the work of these repairmen. And it wasn't like they were fixing the entertainment system, right? They were doing engine work. And we had options on the runway, but at 35,000 feet, no legitimate options really exist. And so we were all wrestling with the same thought. Is exiting better than enduring this flight, right? Should we be buckled into this flight? Now, I wonder if the early Christians that the author James wrote this letter to were wrestling in kind of a, a similar loop of thinking. Now, replace the word flight with faith. Should we really be buckled in to this faith? Tensions were rising, hopes were stalling. They firmly believed that Jesus had come, that he was king, and that he had come to set the world to rights, but their whole world was going wrong. They had to pack their bags and run because of persecution. They had to scatter. Trials were increasing. They felt like guinea pigs to this newly found movement that swept across the ancient world, but trials had interrupted their faith. And they had options. I wonder in their mindset if the exit door on their faith seemed more and more like the, the better option. Right? That struggle isn't just for 2,000 years ago for the early Christians. That struggles right here in this room. When hopes stall and trials come, is remaining buckled into your faith the right option? Is exiting or enduring the right, wiser choice? Which is the better path? James chapter 1 has a word with us. If your soul is like mine and we often waffle in this issue, look in verse 12 and I'll read through verse 18. Blessed is the one who endures trials, 
Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived. He pulls them in close. My dear brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So is endurance the wiser choice or exiting this faith that we espouse? Endurance, James tells us. Because the big idea of this passage is here. God secures his people's safe passage to heaven by having them endure trials and overcome temptation in this life. God secures his people's safe passage to heaven by having them endure trials and overcome temptation. And safe passage, friends, in this room involves keeping three dimensions of this life in view. Number one is the treasure ahead. Endurance signals life is coming. The treasure ahead pulls us toward endurance. Endurance actually signals that life is coming. In verse 12, James wants a word with your doubting, waffling heart on this issue of whether endurance will have this ROI for you in the end. It's return on investment. The clear outcome of enduring trials, James says, is the crown of life. God himself secures those who stay buckled into him until the end, and God himself lays the crown of life upon their head. Endurance of these trials will give way to the enjoyment of the fullness of life that God has promised us in Christ Jesus. Richard Baxter, not one of our members, but a Puritan writer from hundreds of years ago, he wrote a book called Saints Everlasting Rest. And he fast forwarded to the moment when when all of the glory of heaven is, is opened before his soul. And he, he's looking at a, a new heavens and a new earth just sprawling out before him where no death and no decay and no corruption, endless pleasures forever, a feast right before him. He's looking at a reconciled God as his father, at the sufficient blood of Jesus that paid the penalty for his sin on the cross. He's looking at all of these glories. And Baxter just has this moment where he, he just imagines a little conversation where he looks in the rear view mirror for just a glance and he looks at his old heart and he sees his old heart that, that whispered for his lifetime that that God can't be trusted, that that glory wasn't worth it. And he imagines a conversation with his old heart. And can you imagine the disdain when you look back at your, all this glory ahead of you and you look back and you're like, Dude, you would have had me give up all this for that? You, you would have had me doubt love like this for a lie like yours? You, you scoundrel, you dirty, rotten scoundrel of a heart. 
And if you're a teenager in this room, I imagine it like this. You know, heart, you made God seem like the op, right? If you don't know what op means, it means opposition or something like it. Opponent, killjoy, downer, okay, something like that. I don't know the exact translation. Teenagers, you can clarify that later. But old heart of mine, you made God look like the op. You're the true op. You were against me all along. Thank you, Jesus. I bid you farewell forever. That's going to be the experience of every Christian in this room at the cusp of glory. Friends, no one will say, James is clear from heaven, that endurance on earth was, wasn't worth it. We may crawl across the finish line. We may be crippled and lame across that line. But life endured here will be worth it there. James' definition now of the blessed life. I don't know if it lines up with, with yours. Uh, think about our culture. Our culture doesn't really celebrate weakness or trials. It, I doubt on your bucket list, suffering made the list, right? But James is saying this is not only a blessing that's reserved for heaven. This is a blessedness in the endurance of the trials now. And I think there's two facets of the trials that James has in mind. The first facet is that the trials are actually working for you in this sense. They are reinforcing the perception you have of the sturdiness of God's promises. Secondly, they are reordering your love so that you're no longer latched on to God's gifts, but to God's person. Think about it. Endurance is not just get it, gritting our teeth and making it as a Christian. Endurance carries within it this blessedness. I don't know if, how many of you are students. We probably have all been through this at some level. But you remember that, that knot in your stomach when that professor or that teacher says, okay, guys, put up your books. We're going to have a pop quiz, right? You know that feeling of that ill-timed pop quiz and the surprise and the shame and the fears and, and the the knocking knees, right? The cold sweats, if you care about academics at all, or you're great. It's there, right? Now, now think about God by applying pressure in our lives and bringing in trials in our lives as his people. He's graciously keeping you from these cold sweats for them, from the, during the ultimate final exam when we will all give an accounting for him for the life we lived. Through trials, friends, God prepares us for the final exam to not feel like a pop quiz. Now, to be clear, no one passes the final quiz, the final exam on their own merit. It's Jesus' perfect life, his death in our place, and his resurrection that guarantees that that will be a joyful experience in the end for all those who know him and turn from their sin. But enduring testing now for those who have turned from their sin to the Savior. Enduring testing now reinforces our perception of the sturdiness of that hope before the final test arrives. It makes it feel less like a pop quiz. The blessedness of trials is when you stand before him and you have stood the test because his promises have proved faithful. It will not be the first time you say, God, your grace is enough. God, your, your grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. You see, 
in our pain on this side of eternity, God is on a rescue mission to convince your heart that you are not enough to overwhelm your heart with the the durability that he is enough. That's what he's doing in our testing and in our trials. Friends, a proven hope in this life prevents a shaky entrance into the next. He's up to more in our trials than we can even see. That's the first aspect of this blessedness, I think, that James is getting at. The second is this. He's reordering our loves, as Tim Keller says. Look in verse 12. This crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We often substitute God's gifts for his person. And we get things out of order. And trials have a way of prying our hands off his competitors in our hearts. And it leaves us prizing the gift we have in God himself. Friends, in earthly pain, God isn't taking things away to take things away ultimately. Because of Jesus' blood and his resurrection, he is, in all the gaps you feel, he is making room in your heart to fill them with his very own self. He is enlarging your capacity for a joy that you could not fathom. Your heart is not ready to fathom unless the trial had expanded your capacity. Friends, God will not disappoint you in the end. Loving him has nothing to do with the whispering lies of that old heart that will betray you in the end. Loving him will lead you to a life of fullness of joy forever. Now I know some of you are going through deep, deep waters as Christians here in this room. And I just want to encourage you, tighten the belt. Buckle in. The exit door promises nothing but betrayal and disappointment. Endurance is worth it, friend. Hang on one more moment. Hang on one more second. God God is forging a future joy your heart can't currently fathom. Now, I know if you're wrestling with Christianity or you're not a Christian in this room, this might sound totally strange to you, but I want to encourage you, Jesus is honest with us about how much pleasure we can really get out of this world. He says this, what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Jesus knows that the exit door doesn't end well and he wants you to be happy not just for a blip of your life but forever and ever and ever and that is only found in him in turning from your sin and trusting in him as your savior. That's the path to joy forever. The other exit door leads to joy that will betray you forever. He loves us too much to leave us buckled in to a disappointing journey. So friends, reconsider where your lean is. Are you trying to exhaust this fleeting pleasure, this fleeting life for all it's worth? Are you looking forward to the joy of heaven the inexhaustible riches of God's glory in Jesus Christ. We ask you to reconsider, talk with us. We'd love to have that conversation with you. 
the first dimension, okay, the treasure ahead is pulling us to the finish line. The second dimension, if kept in view, promises safe passage. And this is the threat within. The treasure ahead, the threat within, your own desires cannot be trusted to secure life. Your own desires cannot be trusted to secure life. Now James does an interesting thing here in verses 13 through 15. He uses the same word in the original for trial and for temptation to kind of show the flip side of the same experience. So trials are this external thing that we endure that, that, that applies pressure to our faith to get us wondering whether exiting or enduring is the better path. But what pulls us toward the exit door of faith is our own inner desires. Look in verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do you see trial applies to pressure? And no one should say in that moment, should have this running dialogue in their hearts or commentary on their experience that God is trying to trip you up or tempt you toward evil. No one should say that. That's nothing uh, true in the character of God. There's no hint or ounce of evil in him But what you are experiencing is the the evils of your own heart that want to pull you toward the exit door of your faith. That want to unbuckle you from trusting in this God. You see, if we're honest, trials have a way of, of disquieting our hearts. Not only because they're tension in our lives, right? But also because of the theology we we enjoy and we believe in as a church. We believe God is sovereign over everything. So sometimes good theology is just as disquieting and uncomfortable as, 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 as if we rejected that theology in the first place. I mean, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Processing the Grief of Losing His Wife, Joy, he said this. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid because God is good? Haven't they ever been to the dentist? Right? Isn't that true? Doesn't that resonate down deep with our experience in this world? Suspicions multiply about God's choices and God's character as tensions multiply in our lives. And that inner wrestling begins. We start doubting. We start wondering, is there some evil agenda he has for my life? Is he really good? Does he really have my best interest in mind? James says, yes. For his people. There's no hint of evil in him, no hidden agenda of evil from him. He's never felt inclined to evil at any second for all of eternity past and will never be tempted toward evil in eternity future. Notice the emphasis in verse 13. He himself, the pronoun emphasizes, isn't tempting anyone. So, what is God up to in our trials? He's testing in order to prove his own reliability and convince his people of his sufficiency. He's not pulling us toward the exit door to trip or, pat or, or trap us. He's pulling us into his heart to prove the treasure he is for us. 
Friends, the Bible is clear. R.C. Sproul said it so, so greatly. He said there's not one ounce, there's no maverick molecule in the universe. There's no free-floating molecule in the universe that God is not in control of. But we should also add James 1 to that list. There's no maverick molecule, yes, and there's no malicious intent. His sovereignty extends over all. He is over all. There's no question about that. Well, there should not be a question mark over his integrity and his goodness and his sovereignty. Safe passage through this life for the Christian is not the same as an easy passage through this life. We may not see it yet as a Christian. We may not feel it yet. But somehow, some way, God's goodness will shine even through his, the pain of his people. It's not easy, but it will prove safe in the end because his heart is completely trustworthy. So, if he's not the threat in our trials, what is the threat? Well, James locates the real threat. It's not in our creator, let's be clear. It's not in the sovereign one. It's not actually outside of us in our circumstances. That's so easy for us. The threat is within us. Each one, James said, is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And that desire is dangerous. That desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it festers and matures, brings forth death. And notice the pronoun there. His own evil desire. What threatens Chip Bugner for eternity is Chip Bugner. The original even accents it even more. These next two verbs, enticed and drawn away, are passive. Meaning, initially my heart would be inclined towards something. Temptation gives me an opportunity to, to to fuel that desire, to fill that desire, and all of a sudden, like a fish on a hook, I'm being drawn away and enticed. It's passive. I'm being acted upon, and I didn't see that hook in the bait. That's what's happening here. Early hints of the heart towards some evil desire must be tackled right in that moment. And to, to everyone here, this should be a little bit unnerving. And what I mean by that, if you understand what James is saying, what I'm saying to you and what James is saying to you is that a mortal enemy isn't just living in your neighborhood. He's taking up residence in your very desires. It is your mortal enemy is as close as your next thought. My family back in the, in the beginning stages of COVID, whenever that was, feels like I don't know, it feels like a week ago and a lifetime ago at the same time, right? My family moved, we've moved about half a mile down the street from one cul-de-sac to the other cul-de-sac over in Chelsea. And we had the, the great idea and the people buying our old house wanted us to take the in-ground trampoline and move it and get rid of it. So we thought we'll, build, we'll dig a hole at the new house and we'll just transport it over half a mile down the street. So this is what it ended up looking like as we were working on it. Uh, so that's it in the ground at the new house, just to show you this is a true story. Um, it was idiotic, um, but we did it. And, uh, but, so this was a bear to get it out of the ground at the old house. And so we have dug around it. Alan Chapel, if you know him, he came over to help. So I got my four kids out there, I got my wife. 
it's August, we're sweating, we take the cover off. We, our idea was, let's not disassemble it. We can take it full body, half a mile down the, ro- the road, right? So we finally get it out of the ground, okay, which was a bear. And we have our, our hands on the pipe down at the bottom and we're carrying it over a fence and we finally get it to the driveway. We're exhausted. No way we're making it half a mile. So we're like, okay, we got to disassemble it and take it piece by piece. So we start disassembling it. And right where our hands were underneath these poles, all these little jokers start coming out. Actual picture. Uh, not just one, seven of them. And my kids' hands right there, Alan's hands, right? My wife's hands. This one was so big, this next one, he had two hourglasses on him. Never seen that before, right? And we gasped just like you gasped at every one, sevenfold, because the threat was so close and we didn't even know it. That should have been our response to James chapter one. After reading how close, how imminent, How near is your enemy to your soul in your own desires? A threat to your safe passage through this life isn't at your fingertips. James says it's in your very desires. We think our problems are external in nature. It's so easy for us to do this. For instance, you thought Highway 280 was your problem. Traffic, right? But James is clear. Hey, don't say Highway 280 traffic is being tempted by God, right? It's not from God in the the same way, right? We already articulated that. But James is clear. Our desire for ease, our desire for being in control, our desire to have our way on our terms, our immediate desire for pleasure, that's the threat of Highway 280. Highway 280 is just a platform for your desires to draw you in to the sin of anger and impatience and distrusting God's providence in your life. And that sin can grow and grow and grow and fester into the brokenness of relationships, road rage, whatever you might have it fester into. But death will be the result. Your heart wants to make a beeline from 280 to your death. It's so easy. Something as easy as a desire in your soul can initiate a trajectory that can lead to your demise. Desires wage war against us. They're not safe to entertain. They're not neutral. They allure you with false promises that the exit door on your faith will be better than staying buckled into your faith. I think Ray Ortland, actually he's coming in a couple months to do our marriage conference with his wife uh, in April. They, they get, he gets his own vulnerability. I'll never forget listening to a podcast where he said, I firmly believe I am always within five minutes of ruining my life. I think that's a guy who has weighed the suspiciousness of his own heart and doesn't trust his desires. The human heart too is so dodgy, is it not? It likes to avoid detection. It might whisper that God is at fault in our trials or circumstances are to blame. Or you might say it this way, she makes me really mad when she does that. Wait a minute. 
she reached into your heart and triggered the anger button. No, no, I think a better way to say that would be, right? My desire for ease in this moment and for you to be a, 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 I don't know, a wise, you know, gentle, maybe something that would make it, this conversation easy is not going my way. And so I'm getting angry when you do that, but it's my responsibility, right? It's, it's a subtle shift, but it's a light years of difference of who's taking responsibility, but our heart likes to shift the blame and avoid detection. He drives me crazy. Really? The world even echoes it and says you're a victim of the system. The world says you just be you and it'll all be great. That's a lie, friends. That is a lie. I mean, think about it just for a minute. Have a moment of self-awareness. Like, uh, it's two weeks into 2024. How are those resolutions going? And you're going to trust your own desires and your own discipline to get you all the way to heaven. Huh, James wants a word with you, right? It's an interesting way to look at life. And I found one of John Owen's quotes this week. John Owen was a a Puritan writer. He wrote this massive volume uh, on sin and temptation. And I just found it absolutely astounding. He lived in the 1600s, lived a painful life. He had 11 children, he and his wife. And all but one died in infancy. So 10 out of 11 kids died in infancy. The other one, shortly after she was married, got tuberculosis and died as well. So 11 children predated his passing into the next life. You talk about trials. At one point, five kids passed away in four years. And he wrote more about the problem of sin than anyone I know about in church history. This is what he said. He said, I know of no greater burden in the life of a believer than what he calls the involuntary surprisals of these thoughts that pass our our minds or our hearts entertain this evil desires to fulfill our fleshly longings. He knows of no greater burden in the life of a believer than that. After all he's been through, the trials, no. The temptations, yes. The loss, no. The temptation to distrust God in his heart, no, yes. The, the push, no. That's not where the problem is to the exit door. The pull inside me is where the problem resides to the exit door. And I just want to be helpful for a moment. I'll never forget attending a conference in 2001 where John Piper outlined a plan he has to fight sin in his life. What we're saying here is that God secures safe passage to eternal life to those who overcome the desires of your heart that pull us toward the exit door, toward death. One way to think about that is to to live with heightened sensitivity to the imminent threat that lives within you. So you're always on guard. You have that five-minute mentality. And Ray Orland, he's an old Christian. Five minutes is a long time. I think I need five seconds. I can, in five seconds, I can ruin my life, right? So we're aware of, of this heightened sensitivity of the threat of sin. And Piper adds this to it. When he's tempted with some evil desire, he says no out loud. So no. He stops the, the hook from catching him and he speaks to the desire. No. And he says, help, 
because he's praying to Jesus. We do it in faith that Jesus will help us. And then he jolts his soul. What he means by that is he either thinks of something really beautiful like a sunset or something, or he thinks of something really grotesque to kind of jolt him out of that desire. So no help. And then think of something, jolt your soul out of that desire so that you don't feed it and it festers. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and produces death. So shift the preoccupation. Slow down, friends, slow down. I just encourage you, do a little self-diagnosis from James chapter 1 on the last sin you committed. Where was the temptation? What was the desire? What made it enticing? What made you draw away? How did it draw you into itself? When was sin born there? It's sinful in and of itself, but how did sin play out in the action of your will? And how is it festering death in your life? Do a little self-diagnosis. It'd be great to do a checkup. If you can't think of the last sin that you committed, that might be another way that you need to think through how to help this passage address us. So slow down, do a little diagnosis, but let me just encourage us, don't be shocked. When sin festers, it creates all kinds of mayhem. Don't be shocked, let us not be shocked as a church at at sin when it's festered. But also, let us cling to the shock absorber, right? The, The reason why you can get up, if you have exited the faith in some minute way or even deconstructed wholly, right? There's no, nothing small about it. It's important. It's serious. But if you've, if you've leaned into sin, there's a Savior. That's what we believe as a church. You can, you can get up. You can have this kind of gutsy guilt where you're guilty, yes, but you can get up again because there's hope for sinners in the blood of Jesus. So slow down. No help. Jolt your soul. If you've already fallen, get up. Get up, soul, and fight again. Fight to live another day. Do it early, do it often, do it now. That's what James is saying. The third truth that helps us navigate the safe passage to this future world is the truth from above. The truth from above. The gospel reveals God as Father and the only trustworthy and good giver of life. The truth from above, verses 16 through 18, James pulls us in close. He says, brothers, sisters, don't be deceived. Every good. Now think about it. Deception has been something we've been buying ever since Genesis chapter 3. Satan came up to Eve and he whispered in her ear, hey, did, did God say really that you can't enjoy any of these trees? Meaning, is God really interested in your well-being or is he really out to enjoy the trees himself? Is he good for you? Do you really want to stay buckled into this, Eve? And don't we wish the conversation might have gone differently and Adam would have said, hey, you, you on the ground there, what'd you say? Eve, come, come over here. Eve, come over here. He said, he said, you can't enjoy any tree in the garden. But Eve, that's not what God said. God said, you can enjoy every tree of the garden except for one. Don't let him lie to you. 
Let's go on a tour around the Garden of Eden and let's look at every tree you can enjoy. Because every good and perfect gift, verse 17, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Eve, don't listen to the lie. Church, don't listen to the lie that has divorced happiness from holiness, that has made obedience boring. That is from the pit of Satan's heart that is darkness at its core. But the father of lights is so generous. Notice, every good gift flows from his hand and it actually is an expression of his heart. He is goodness to the core. Nothing on the outside of him has to constrain his goodness. He doesn't need coffee in the morning to be happy. He's not moody. You don't have to tiptoe around him wondering if you're going to anger him. He is good to the core. I remember when Simeon, my son, was like four years old, and uh, we had just introduced him to the Marvel series, and Hulk was a new character in his brain. And so I thought I had this old T-shirt on. I thought I'd bust into the boys' room and act like the Incredible Hulk. And I just ripped my shirt off. And uh, sorry for that mental image. And, um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, four-year-old Simeon, elephant tears. And he's like, what happened to my dad? Right? That's, that's what he's wondering. Like, oh, man, is, is my dad changing colors? Right? Friends, there is nothing untrustworthy. There's nothing unchanging. There's nothing changing about the heart of God. He is good to the core. Nothing outside him generates his benevolence. Nothing outside him needs to constrain his benevolence. He is good, y'all. All the time he is good. This goodness spilled over into your spiritual life. Look at that, what it says in verse 18. By his own choice. He gave us birth by the word of truth. So if you're a Christian in this room, the gospel, the good news, the truth about who he is, the generosity of God displayed on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus came across your ears and he infused new life into your heart and you became a part of his family and you were opened in the sense of you were opened your eyes. You opened your eyes. He opened your eyes to the wonder of his fatherly care in your life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And notice the contrast. God's generosity spills over into giving birth to new life. Whereas your own heart, it gives birth to sin, which will take you down a road that leads to death. You see the contrast? Friends, a a born again, a truly born again Christian remains suspicious of himself all his days. But attacks any ounce of suspicion that remains in his heart of God's character with faith. That's what happens. I was talking to a newer believer this week, and he said uh, recently he's just been on this journey, amazing journey, and he said he was in the car, and he found himself just going through all the good gifts in his life that God had given him. And then it hit him. He's like, if God is really this good, I should thank him for all the, the things that are going bad in my life as well because I know that he has something better in mind he has something better in mind that's how a Christian talks 
William Cooper, in that great hymn, Behind a frowning providence, he wrote, God hides a smiling face. Friends, if the atmosphere of your Christian life is wonder at the goodness of God, both in his gifts that are lavish in display of his heart and love, then rehearsing that will will change the atmosphere of how you endure trials. Friends, let's, let's navigate these dimensions. The treasure ahead will pull us toward endurance. The threat within, addressing that early and often, will keep us from the exit door. And the truth from above that God is good all the time will keep us on the path.